Week number three of the series we're teaching that I'm trying to teach about financial freedom. And it's financial freedom revisited because a lot of the things that we're talking about are things that five years ago, and I try to take these things every every year in some capacity, but I took the same amount of time, four weeks, and talked about some of these exact same principles. And it's interesting. I've had a couple of people say to me, why don't you do this every year? And I said, normally I have. I've always generally taken about a month to talk about stewardship or financial principles. And whether you know it or not, I usually weave all these exact same topics and ideas into other sermons. Um, but just taking five weeks, five weeks or four weeks and calling it financial freedom um, kind of alerts us to the fact that, oh yeah, it's not just kind of just, just put into a sermon, it's the whole heart of the sermon is, is financial freedom. And so we're on week three, week one, um, we talked about something. We talked about a word that has four letters, but it's not a four-letter word. What's that word? Work. That Christians, we are to work heartily as how? As unto the Lord, not unto man. And we learned that work is a good thing, that God gives us work, that work was, was in the garden before the fall. A lot of people think work um, is just a result of, of uh, man sinning, and now God kicked them out of the garden. They have to earn uh, what they have by the sweat of their brow? Well, before the, before the fall, they had productive work in the garden. They had to name the animals and, and tend the garden. And so work is a good thing. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God to help us develop our talents and abilities. It's a gift from God to help us provide for our families. And we talked about the fact that, that very few of you, I don't know if any of you in here, will just inherit a million dollars and not have to ever work. And I'm not even sure if inheriting a million dollars today could keep you from not having to ever work. But... Um, most of us have to work, and that um, God has given that as a gift to us in order to help develop us and provide. That was week one. Week two, we talked about stewardship, the idea that, that we are, as children of God, stewards, and the steward is a manager of the resources of God. Now, we just talked about it in, in kids' church this morning. We, it was um, BGMC Sunday, Boys and Girls Missionary Challenge, their, their missions giving. And in BGMC, in kids' church, anytime you say out loud, it's the only time they're allowed to interrupt. In this church, uh, matter of fact, we have the best-behaved kids on the planet. Pastor Paul does such a great job, and it's not behaved mean, meaning overt, hard, sit in your chair. It's just a wonderful atmosphere of teaching the kids about respect and teaching the kids about how to act in the group. He does a great job of it. But the only time they're allowed to I- interrupt ever is if somebody says BGMC, and when you say BGMC, they all yell out, "Pray, give, go," because that's the theme for BGMC: pray, give, go. And um, so we talked about basically stewardship principles, that God has given us our time, our talent, and our treasure, and a steward is one who manages those three three things for the glory of God. And that we say, and as I manage them for God, I recognize that my paycheck doesn't really, is really not my paycheck as a child of God. It really is God's, and he lets me keep most of it. But then my, my duty before him is to manage it well for him, and that's stewardship. And we talked about that. Um, last week, or last time we talked about finance, took a little break because of Mexico, um, the missions trip in here, and we talked about a, a simple plan you could use to manage God's resources. We call it the 10-10-80 plan. The reason I bring those up is if you miss those two, this is all kind of tying into each other, um, you might want to listen to those on the website. And by the way, if you haven't seen our new website, uh, you need to go to it. It is a phenomenal website. It's a website that you'd have if you're a church of 10,000, honestly. It's that good. Um, and uh, Pastor Paul and our, our uh, per company that did it did a great job over the last year. And all the information you need, sermons, all that's all on our website, portviewchurch.com. 
So make that a regular thing that you go to. So week one, um, work. Week two, stewardship. And now week three, the, this week, um, we're going to touch on something that I just mentioned in week two. And it's a word that we hate. It is a four-letter word that I want you to think of as a four-letter word. And it's the word debt. I'm going to talk about debt. Um, and that, that's what's going to be our focus today. But I want to talk about it in a way that maybe you have not considered before. I want to start by talking about something that is an outcome of debt. It's related to debt. And it's this other word that we don't like. It's a word called stress. Anybody ever feel stressed out? I do sometimes. You say, oh, it's not Christian. Well, I think Jesus was felt pretty stressed out in the garden that he was so stressed out that he sweat drops of blood. Right? Now, we're not supposed to live in a stressed out life. Matter of fact, if you're a steward of God's resources, it alleviates stress. But if you had no stress, you would be dead. Because stress is simply part of life. And um, we want to talk about that today. Um, Because we know something, that stress is just part of life, but too much stress can have incredibly negative effects on us. Doctors tell us that too much stress causes heart disease. Stress, I know this, too much stress will keep you from sleeping at night. You know, stress can have all kinds of problems, um, physical problems in our lives. And there's another, another effect of stress that maybe you've never thought of, but that it ties to our topic today, and I want to I explain it to you before I tie it together, and it's this, that an effect of stress, a negative effect, is that stress causes diminished capacities in your life. Stress causes diminished capacities in your life. And I want to I wanna explain that by giving you an illustration this morning. A number of years ago, um, at one particular time in our family's life, me and Suzanne and Josh and Brett, um, we were in a season of time where we were under an incredible amount of stress as a family. It was a time of transition. We were actually deciding whether or not we would move, resign our position in Cambodia and move back to America. It was not our plan. Um, it was a huge time of transition. It was a huge time of unknown. When I did decide to resign, um, I had no job, and I had quit my, my occupation, basically, of pastoring and went off to teach church planting in Cambodia, and now I'm coming back to America. I have no idea what we're going to do. I have no idea what I want to do at that stage, and we're just under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. How are we going to pay the bills? Uh, what should we do? What's God's plan for us? You know, negative effects in our family because of tension or people who disagreed in our family. Some thought we should do one thing and some thought we should do another thing. And I'd like to tell you that during that time, what we did every night, we got up. We said, come here, family. We held hands. We began to sing Kumbaya. And then after Kumbaya, we'd all raise our hands and say, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, and we said that, you know what? That's not what happened in our family. You wouldn't have liked what happened in our family. The reality is we were, we were rather snarky with one another. Uh, we were fighting like cats and dogs during that period of time, not wanting to, but just the st- stress level was so high that we were just constantly on edge and we were short with each other and we were, and we were fighting with one another a time that we needed to be closer than we ever had been before, the most challenging season we ever walked through, we should have been helping each other, and instead, being closer than ever, we were fighting all the time. I remember going to the Lord in prayer and and being frustrated and saying, God, why is this? Because as a family, we really get along well. We love each other. We really are very fortunate. We have a very tight-knit family. We love each other. and, And I'm saying, God, how come at the time 
When it seems like we should be closer than ever, we're being completely torn apart. And I began to just think about that and pray about that. And I'm thinking back over just life experience and saying, how come I've watched families that go through hard things, so often going through that hard thing, cause the destruction of their family or destruction of relationships? And I I remember remembering um, a a man from another church that we pastored who who had told me that they had walked for eight years through a long-term death of a child. And during that time of eight years of helping this child, trying to get her through, and it was a kidney problem, the father actually gave a kidney to her, and they had they'd tried to, try to do everything, and, and as a family, they, 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 you know, their whole life revolved around trying to get Sarah to survive. And in that time, they met a whole bunch of other families who were dealing with, with life-threatening illnesses with children, and eventually Sarah died. And they said that of all of the families that they had become friends with during the season when they had walked through the long-term illness with a child, they were the only couple that was still married. That out of 100% of every other couple that they had walked through this stuff with had got a divorce. And so my question was, I remember John telling me that, and I'm saying, God, why do we tear each other apart at times that are stressful times that we ought to be lifting each other up. And, I, and I, I don't want to exaggerate this and make it seem like something it wasn't, but the Lord gave me a, a picture in my mind as an answer. And I, when I'm saying, I, I can't say it was a vision. I've had a couple times in my life where I think I had an honest Holy Spirit vision. But that wasn't like that. I just had this, this thought, this picture came into my mind that explained what was going on. And he showed me the picture of someone who was drowning. And it was me, and it was in a, in, a, in a lake or an ocean, and just paddling, you know, feverishly, trying to keep my head above the water. You know, and you've ever been in that situation where you take a gulp of water? I'm a pretty good swimmer, but you take a gulp of water, and you know, you're wrestling with the kids, and they keep pushing your head under, and you're at that point where you're just, every, all your energy is just going to trying to grasp a breath of air. You're, you're on the verge of drowning. And what the Lord showed me in that situation, when a person's in that situation, all of the energy of their life is just going for one thing, self-preservation. That in a drowning situation, you have no capacity to help other people around you. All you can do in a drowning situation is try to keep your head above the water. You can't help someone who's drowning next to you. Somebody else is going through also problems. You can't really help them. You're just trying to keep your head above water. You can't stop long enough to try to help them. And your capacity to do what normally you would normally do in life was help and, and reach and be calm. Your capacity is diminished. And friends, the Lord was showing that that's what happens in times of great stress in our lives. That all we're really trying to do is keep our head above water. And so when I'm going through stress and I'm just trying to keep my head above water, um, other people around me need help, but I can't help them. And as a matter of fact, instead of helping them, I, I do one of two things. I either hurt them because you know what happens when a drowning person, somebody else comes to try to help, what do they do? They do everything they can. They claw, they scream, and they grab, and they pull you under just to get a breath of air. And so you hurt the people next to you. Or what is the other thing you would do? You'd stay at arm's distance. I can't hardly keep up. You're going down. I'm not swimming close to you because I'm just trying to survive myself. And the reality is that, that we either hurt or we avoid people in that situation when we're drowning. And stress 
is like that drowning situation. That we're doing everything to hold our heads up. And it diminishes our ability to do anything else positive. Now I wonder, is it possible that this kind of scenario has ever played out in your life? You're so stressed out that all you really could think about was trying to keep yourself afloat. When people got close to you, you hurt them. Or when people tried to get close to them, you, you withdrew. I would bet this. Not one of us in this place who's lived any amount of years has ever not been in that situation. Everyone has been in that situation. Now, with that in mind, let's take that and move forward and apply this idea to our topic of financial freedom. See, here's a life reality that ties it together. A life reality that the stress caused by debt causes diminished capacity in your life. That debt causes diminished, causes stress, and that stress causes diminished capacity in your life. It reduces and inhibits what you could otherwise do with your life. And I want to give you some, a, a couple of very practical uh, examples of how this works. First of all, let's say, how does, how does debt stress cause diminished capacity in your lives? Well, you're, you're in debt. You're spending money on, on just keeping up with paying interest payments on loans. And uh, it is, so that, therefore, it, it diminishes your ability to give the way you would want to give. That money that should go toward generous giving is used instead to make interest payments. Last time we talked about this, two weeks ago, I, I quoted you a number that says that an average American, 14.5% of your income goes to paying interest on debt. Now, it's funny. As people talk about a tithe and they go, I can't believe if you've ever told anybody in another church that doesn't go to church that you give 10%, they go, that's the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. How dare, that's the stupidest thing. I hear it every, every week somebody tells me they talk about it and people tell them how crazy they are. Friends, multiply that times 1.5 that's how much the average person in America just pays for interest to service debt in their lives. 14.5%, almost 15% of their income on average simply goes to make interest payments. So debt stress, debt causes diminished capacity in your ability, ability to give. The debt diminishes one's capacity to give the way they would like to give because all this excess money is going to pay interest in their lives. But it's not just a financial thing. Debt stress causes diminished capacity in our lives in this way, in our ability to have healthy relationships. It's kind of what I talked about my family in a stressful time, kind of biting and devouring one another. We couldn't have healthy relationships because you can't help your spouse or your kids or your friends when you're using all your emotional energy just to survive because you're drowning in debt. And you know what it feels like to have debt. You wonder, how am I going to pay the bill? And you can't sleep at night. How am I going to pay for this? And another, the phone rings, is it a debt collector? And, you're, and it, that, that's happening in your life that diminishes your ability to have healthy relationships with your, with your spouse and your kids and your friends. So debt stress causes diminished capacity. Debt stress also causes diminished capacity in your lives and your ability to minister effectively. Now here's something I need you to understand. If you're born again, if you've met Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are called to minister for God. God has given you gifts and talents and abilities that he says what you should not do with it is hide it under a bushel. He says instead it should be like a light sitting on it, shining on a hill. 
He says, I gave you those capacities and abilities not so you could just make lots and lots of money. I gave them so you can use them for my glory to expand my kingdom and rescue people from, from hell and help them come into the kingdom and go to heaven like Pearl did. You know how much energy, ministry over her life she received and she gave. She used her abilities. So debt, though, the stress from debt, diminishes your capacity to minister effectively. And here's why. When your capacity to give love is diminished, you can't adequately serve others. You can't minister without love. Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says you can do all these things. You can, you can sacrifice it all for the poor. You can even give your body to, as a martyr to be burned, he says. But if it's not based on love, it'll accomplish nothing. And so the reality is, your ability, when debt stress piles up in your life, it, it, it diminishes your ability to love. Because remember, I'm going to either keep them at arm's length or I'm going to push them under the water. I can't help them. And so I can't minister effectively. So the ministry that God's called you to is diminished by stress from debt. Now, obviously, you can tie this to stress in general. You can make more applications of this, but today we're just talking about debt stress. And one more th- way that, that debt stress causes diminished capacity in our lives is in the area of going. Jesus said something. He said to every single person who names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, go and make disciples of all the nations. For some of you, that means go across the street, go to a co-worker, Go to a friend, go to a neighbor, and tell them about Christ. In a way that you build a relationship and you love on them, and when, the, when you, have, you try to push the door for a spiritual conversation, and when the door is ajar a little bit, you can enter in, and you try to share. If they close the door, you stop, but, but you try to share the love of Christ. You just share your story, what Jesus has done in your lives. But for some of us, that call to go, and it's a call from God, requires for you to pack up your bags and move somewhere else. It's the kind of uh, lifestyle that for most of our lives, Suzanne and I have lived. Our goal when we started off in ministry was this. I said it all the time. Plant the church or stay there until you die. I was going to buy a funeral plot, a burial plot in Marquette, Michigan. It was honestly my plan because I'm never going to leave there. Well, guess what? God had other plans. It weren't my plans. Um, life would have been easier except for ridiculous amounts of snow. Life would have been easier because we planted this thriving church that we loved, everybody loved us, it was great, incredible influence in the community, it was easy to become a big fish in a small pond, and had this wonderful life, but guess what, God said, okay, you did that, now go again, and we go another place, and he says, now go again, we go again, I'm thinking, he realizes I'm tired, and he's not telling me to go to any place new in any, any near future, and that's not a, I'm not trying to put something out there saying I'm leaving, I'm not, um, but here's what I know, that going if God calls you to go the way Brett's going to be going to, uh, to Turkey in six months or five months, um, you know, um, that requires that you just have to abandon it all and go. Well, guess what? You can't do it. You can't do it if you have a bunch, of st- a bunch of debt. If you have debt, you can't go and do God's plan for your life. And so I remember when we applied for the Assemblies of God World Missions uh, Department to be world missionaries and go to Cambodia, they gave us an application. And it's interesting, on the application, right near the top, was you had to fill out, how much debt do you have? You say, well, debt's not spiritual. It sure is, because they knew you couldn't go if you had a whole bunch of debt you had to pay off. Then I remember back even earlier when I came out of Bible college, and God had miraculously, I mean, in a prayer, in a prayer time, I never planned on being a pastor. My plan was, I really believed I was supposed to be an evangelist and travel and preach to see people get saved. That was really my, what I thought I was supposed to do. 
And Suzanne always says, uh, God will speak to you about that. She said, I'm not living in a mobile home, you know. And <laughs> Listen to that, Oslins. God doesn't want anybody living in a mobile home. <laughs> um, and so anyways, but she's just like, that's not my calling. And, and God really spoke to me and said, I want you to be a church planting pastor. And it was in a prayer room. I mean, it was as clear as a bell. Somebody audibly said it to me, and I, it was the Lord. And, and so anyways, we came out of Bible college, and we were asked to go to, to um, would we consider planting a church in Marquette, Michigan, um, where there had been five failed church plants in that town from the Assemblies of God, and, and uh, would we consider doing that? And interesting, I had to meet with a pastor who was from a laboring church who was going to try to help select the next guy because everybody they brought up there always failed. And they thought, well, maybe we've got, we got to get somebody who fits better. And so they wanted to interview and wait to hear from the Holy Spirit if that was the right person. And the first question, the guy whose name was David, Pastor David, first question he asked me, he did not ask me, are you born again? He did not ask me, are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? He asked me one question, how much debt do you have? And I said, well, none. You know, we just graduated from college. Not, we, we lived in poverty in order to have no financial debt coming out of school. And uh, worked, like, worked our tails off and went through college debt-free, um, working really hard. No one else giving us money as far as parents or anything. But God miraculously, through, through our partnership with him and hard work and willing sacrifice, we walked out with no debt. And they said, you have no debt? And he said, well, you're halfway there. I said, what do you mean? And he said, because you're not going to make anything. And we didn't. We lived on $192 a week for over two years. Um, in that time, had had one child and somehow saved money and bought a used car. I don't know how we did it, but uh, um, the fact of the matter is, the question they asked us about in both situations in order to go was how much debt do you have? But friends, think of it this way. Is it worth borrowing money and then paying interest to have the nice new car or the or the the cool toy or the the lake cottage or the big home if you're then not able to go and follow God's lead in your life? When God is saying to you, go, and here's my deal, I think God called a whole lot more people to go. And they just say, oh, I can't because I'm tied here. One of the things that ties us here is debt. Um, we need to understand something very spiritual about this. Debt stress diminishes our capacity in many areas of our lives. And listen to me, friends. And the devil loves it. The devil loves it. You see, the devil doesn't have to kill you. He doesn't have that, he doesn't have that ability. He doesn't have to kill you. He just has to tempt you to spend more than you really can spend so that you are buried in debt and you're rendered ineffective in all these ways we just mentioned. Your ability to go, your ability to minister, your ability to have good relationships, your ability to give as God wants. All he's got to do is tempt you through all the media and all the culture around you to do like everybody else does and get buried in debt so that your capacities are diminished and you're rendered ineffective for the Lord. And I'd say this, that is the story of many Americans today. Diminished by debt. And I just think the devil sits back and he laughs. He goes, oh, another one who can't really accomplish a whole lot because they're just trying to keep their head above water and they're diminished in any other capacity. But church, you understand something? We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different than the world around us. We're to march to the beat of a different drummer is the way it's been said. The drummer who's beating the beat out for us is Jesus. He's telling us what to do. And he wants us in our, in our lives to be free in all areas. He wants us to be free spiritually. 
That's why Jesus himself came to earth and died for our sins on the cross. He said, you have debt in your life, sin debt, and you can never pay for it. And I'm going to come and I'm going to pay your, your account. Paid in full. He stamps it. Paid in full. Mark's not guilty. He doesn't have to pay anymore for the sin when I come to Jesus. He wants us to be free spiritually. But he also wants us to be free financially. Free from the entrapment of, of debt. Free from the love of, of things. Free from believing that the stuff of the world can make you happy. And friends, he's given us all kinds of guidance for how to live free in his word, the Bible. And I want to give you one simple text today. Every week I've been trying to really focus on one text you can get a hold of. One verse that you can get a hold of that can change your life financially. And for this week it's Proverbs 22.7. Proverbs 22.7 says this, The borrower becomes the lender's slave. Proverbs 22.7 The borrower becomes the lender's slave. Hmm, sounds like God was listening to the first part of my sermon. Maybe. Or maybe... I've been listening to his sermon. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. Let's think about this with a very real-life situation today. Let's say that you think, according to the way our culture lives, that debt is okay, and that your philosophy of life is simply buy whatever you want and um, borrow to get it. Now, borrowing means you're putting on a credit card that you can't pay off, or borrowing means um, taking a loan out and signing a, you know, signing a loan. But you just think, I put some money down and I pay a little bit of money the rest of my life in order to have the things that I want. And let's say having that attitude in your life, you took a credit card and you charged $3,000 on a credit card. Now, I just saw a commercial on TV that said this, that said Americans, on average, if you, ha- if you carry a balance on your credit card, meaning, like I've had a credit card since I'm 18 years old, never paid a penny of interest in my life. I use a credit card every day of my life. It's a tool for me. Never paid a nickel in interest one time since I'm 18 and had the card. Unless the credit card company made a mistake and did something wrong, we said, hey, take that charge off right now or you lo- I, I'm not keeping this card. And they go, oh, I see you've been paying your bills for 30 years. I'm going to take this off. And so anyways, um, uh, you, you charge um, $3,000 on a credit card. I was saying the average person, though, if you carry a balance, you know what the average balance of an American is? 14,000, that if you carry a balance, if you're somebody other, if you just don't use it for a tool like I do, where you just use it and pay it off, but you actually carry a balance, meaning at the end of one month you didn't pay for it all, those people, which is most of the people in our culture, carry an average balance of $14,000 on their credit cards. So now, back to our our thing. Let's say you charge only 3,000 on your credit card that you're not paying off, so that's a lot less than the average person in America. You have a $3,000 balance on your credit card, and you decide to pay the minimum monthly payments, which sometimes is 2% and sometimes is 4%, but let's use 2% as our number. How long do you think it would take to pay off the $3,000 on your credit card? Somebody just throw out a number. How long would it take you to pay off $3,000? 10 years? 20 years. 20 years. 37 uh, years and 7 months. And you know how much you would pay? At the end of 37 years and seven months, you could buy that $3,000 something, whatever it was, or many things that accumulated to $3,000. You would have actually paid $10,931 in payments. In other words, $7,931 in interest on debt. That's almost $8,000 that could have been used for something eternal. 
instead of something that, believe me, 37 years and seven months later, you don't even remember what you bought anymore. I don't remember what I bought three weeks ago, let alone 37 years later. Now, what if what would have happened um, in this person's life would have been a little bit different or a lot of it different? Somehow, a person would keep themselves from spending that $3,000 and done just the opposite. They would have actually somehow saved $3,000 and put that $3,000 into an IRA or a 401k and let's say they made 10% interest. Now I understand right now you're saying, I'm getting people that are not making 10% interest and we're not right now, a lot of people, but the average historical return on the stock market in America over the last 100 years is 10%. And so let's just say for ease's sake that you made 10% interest for that same period of time, 37 years and seven months. Do you know how much that $3,000 would have turned into? $126,454. What a difference. From wasting $8,000 on interest to earning for yourself $126,454. Well, friends, the thing that makes these two scenarios work the way they do is one simple word, interest. It's what you pay when you use debt. And they say, yeah, 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 you can use that credit card to buy that thing. I would love you to. Matter of fact, I'll send you another credit card so you can buy another thing. What are they saying? They're saying they, they hate people like me that just use the card and pay it off every month. They love people who go, no, no, we'd love for you to buy more because then we're going to charge you interest right? Paying a lot of interest will kill you financially, um, but learning, learning how to have it work for you will benefit you greatly. And I want to tell you something. My goal today, one stated goal this whole sermon, my goal today is simple. I want to get every single person from Portview Church on the right side of the interest equation. Receiving interest on savings, or at least planning on getting there, instead of paying interest on debt. And this is what I want you to think of. I want you to see debt as a monster. Something to avoid, something to run from. It's the scariest monster in any monster movie you've ever seen. It, it, its name, when it rips open his shirt, is not whatever, it's debt. That you think of debt as the worst four-letter word in your vocabulary, that it's a monster. Because I want you to avoid debt like the plague. And my hope is that today you will covenant in your heart to get out of debt if you're currently in debt, and begin to save and live financially free instead. And here's how it starts. There's a financial life fact that you need to live by for this to work. And it's this. And this is the opposite of what you're told in our culture. It's the opposite even of what you see modeled in church oftentimes. And it's simply this. If you can't pay for something with cash, then you can't afford it. Kind of revolutionary, isn't it? If you can't pay for it, you can't afford it. If you need to borrow for an item, then you can't afford it, so don't buy it. And remember, a credit card is just borrowing. You don't have the cash to pay for it, so it includes using your credit card. If you need to borrow, which is using your credit card, then you can't afford it, so don't buy it. Now, there are a few exceptions to the rule. Um, It can be all right to borrow on items that can make you money or will get more valuable, they appreciate in value. Something will be worth more in the future will offset the interest payments that you're paying. So, for an instance, it may be okay, and I'm not saying it is, it may be okay to borrow money for a home. 
in the past, before 10 years ago, I would have said, yeah, it's absolutely okay to borrow money from a home. I still think the house that I bought in 2009 when I moved here is worth less than I paid for it in 2009. I'm paying interest payments on it, but it's, less, it's worth less. First time probably in our, in our culture that's really happened, maybe the second, where we had such a devaluation in real estate, but generally speaking, housing appreciated, so it was expected, or it was just a common practice that it was okay to borrow money for a home, and it still can be. But the reason for our huge financial debacle um, a few years back was because everybody borrowed on homes way more than they could afford. And so a home may be okay if it's within your ability to pay, um, and it appears that it will appreciate. So it might be okay to borrow for a house. It could be okay to borrow for a business loan, because maybe you take out a business loan, and the business loan allows you to get started in a business that's going to make you a lot more money in the future. Better have a good business plan, but it could be okay to do that. It might be okay to borrow money for a car. And now that doesn't mean you should go buy the most expensive car there is, but you might be okay to borrow money for a car if you need that car in order to earn money at a job, and you can't get the job without having the car. Now, we live in this world where we say, well, I can't do that because I want to live 50 miles from where I work. Um, I remember when I was financially tight, I did what I hated to do. I literally went and rented an apartment right next to the place I worked at, downtown West Bend, right by the train tracks, because I worked at Sarah Sales for six years. So I got an apartment right next to it so I could walk to work. Didn't have much money. So, but it could be okay to borrow money for a car. Not, we can't always do that. Just, you know, we can't always just move next to our employer. Our employer changes. It might be okay to borrow money for college loans. And I say might be. Because this is the next big shoe that's going to drop in our culture today, in our society. The housing um, debacle happened, overvaluing of housing, people borrowing, way borrowing more than they should have, that bubble crashed. And now we owe more money in our culture on student loans than all the housing combined. And so something's going to give eventually. People have incredible student loans. They come out and they listen to their the, the schools who are telling them, oh, just borrow more money. Just borrow more money. Well, here's the deal. You can borrow more money, get your degree. It doesn't guarantee you a job. And so be very cautious about borrowing money. I've told my kids, here's what I think you should do. Go to school for a lot longer period of time. Live your life. Live your life. If school takes you eight years, take eight years. But live life. Borrow money. I don't borrow money. So Josh did that for one year. He worked full-time, went to college full-time. Um, and he said, this is crazy. I'm joining the National Guard. He's there right now. You know, He hates it. He hates the National Guard. Are, where's Sam in here? No, she's teaching a class. He hates the National Guard, doesn't he? He just told us he hates it. But guess what? He does it because he's paying for his college. That's why he goes. You know, and he's serving his country. And so the reality is college loans could be okay if you borrow a little bit that's just going to get you the education to get the job that you need. There's a whole lot of people who borrow a ton of money. They just go to college and they borrow all the money to live on. They don't hardly work. They want to get it done in a short period of time. I'm saying just stretch it out. You know, you can do it. So, the rule of thumb is never borrow on items that get worth less money or something that won't have a return. Never borrow on depreciating items. And most things you ever want to buy depreciate in value, so don't borrow for them. Now, here's the deal. For some of you, this is a really hard sermon to hear. We have, we have two crowds in the church like this. Maybe, maybe some in the middle too, but pretty much two crowds. Some of you are very well healed. You have all kinds of money. You don't have to borrow money. You go, ah, this isn't for me. Can you do us a favor? Teach your kids and your grandkids to not borrow money. 
Raise your kids up and teach them that it's wrong. My kids have been pounded in their head. If you peeled their brains open, it would say, don't borrow money. On their, engraved in their skulls. Is that true, Brett? Pounded into their heads. You know, because I don't want to see my kids have a diminished capacity in serving Jesus. So pound it into their heads. Pound it into your grandparents' heads. The other side of you, you're saying, I'm sitting here right now, Pastor Mark, and I'm swamped in debt. You know what? I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to say, you know what? We have to start getting you to move out of debt. It's a long-term plan. It's going to be really hard, but you can do it. You know, and I know for some of you it's really hard to hear. But if you are honest with yourself, you would admit this. Debt stress is diminishing your capacities in many ways in your life, and you don't like it. So you know what? If that's you, I want to challenge you today. Make a commitment in your life that says from this day forward, no more debt. You can't get out of debt until you stop getting in more. So you make a decision today. No more debt under any circumstance. No more debt. And then you start working your way out of it. Cut up your credit cards. You know what? Toss out the catalogs that come in your house. You know, we had a really funny situation that happened the other day. And I didn't even notice it until Brett literally out loud started laughing at me. A Cabela's flyer came in the mail. I hate those things because I like them. Cabela's flyer came in the mail. And I literally picked it up and I said out loud to Brett, why do they send me these dumb things? I don't need anything. And I opened it up and I said, wow, that's a great price. I think I'm going to go buy a couple of those. And I said it out loud and Brett started laughing at me. He said, you just said you don't need anything, and now you just said you're going to go buy two of them. That's a, but it's a really good price. <laughs> so here's the deal. Cut up your credit cards, throw the magazines in the garbage, and stop thinking that the most, this is one of the number one recreations in America. You know what it is? Shopping. We don't know what to do, so what do we do? We go to the mall. All the malls designed to get you to spend money you don't have. Go walk in the park. Go walk out at, at the bluffs along the lake and no one's going to try to sell you anything. And it's better for you. So cut up your credit cards, toss out the catalogs, stop going to the malls, and just make this determination. I'm going to live within my means. Stop going further in the hole and then little by little start paying off your debt. You must stop the cycle. If you can't pay for it, then you can't afford it. You have to get that into your head. Our world has taught us that if you can't afford it, you deserve it, so just borrow to get it. It's the devil's trap to render you ineffective. It's the devil's trap. He, the devil's saying, yeah, I'll teach you this, because then you're ineffective in your relationships, and your giving, and your going, and your service. And I'm telling you, friends, God's got something better for you. And something you can buy with a piece of plastic. Now, I'm no fool. And I understand that it's not easy. This won't be easy for a lot of people in this place. It won't be easy for a lot of people in our culture because debt has become a way of life. And I know this. In order for you to live within your means, you have to make some hard adjustments in your life. You may have to sell some of your toys. You may have to downsize. You may have to give up certain memberships that you just think, but that is a necessity. You may have to give up certain luxuries. We have a saying in our house, a saying in our house all the time. We say first world problem because we've been fortunate to have lived in the third world. And so when we're saying something is necessary. One of us usually say, oh, it's a first world problem. Oh, my cell phone doesn't work. Okay, well, most of the world doesn't have one. 
you may have to make some hard adjustments. You may have to give up certain memberships, certain luxuries, and, and guess what? As much as we don't think this, things like cell phones, cable TV, and club memberships, and a lot of times second cars are extras. For years, we lived with one car. Remember, Suzanne, we lived out in the country, in Marquette, Michigan, Nagani, Michigan. The worst house, the cheapest house for sale on MLS. That's how come we bought it. It was such a wreck, they wouldn't give us a loan, a 20-year-old house that some guy built by himself. It was a total piece of junk. They gave me a 90-day construction loan on it because it was such bad shape. In 90 days, had to have that thing in shape in order to pass for a loan. And um, Suzanne had two children. We had two children back then out in the country, and we had one car. Mark went to church every day. Suzanne sat by herself at the house. Um, couldn't, couldn't leave. I'd have to, we'd have to work it out. I had to come get her. I was gone 60 hours a week at least, and she was at home with the kids. Was it ideal? It stunk. It was rotten. She hated it. But you know what? We did not have money to buy another car. We weren't going to borrow money to do it. And somehow, she survived, didn't kill the kids, <laughs> came close. You what? You did not hate being at home with the children. Yes, you love being at home with the children. You hate being trapped in the middle of nowhere. This is the house that one time Josh went outside. We couldn't find him. Josh, you've got to remember, Josh, take all your two-year-olds in the world, take all of their hyperactive, difficult traits, combine them together, and put them in one body. That was Josh. So he'd escape. We couldn't find him. He'd escape out of the house. We'd lock the doors. He'd get out of the house. So the neighbor, and this is out in the country, but a neighbor had a little dog named Ziggy. And the snow is deep. I'm not lying. It's that deep. And he somehow wants to go see Ziggy. So he escapes from the house, and he goes to see Ziggy. And Suzanne, with a few minutes, can't find him. She opens the door. She can't find him. She's hollering. Can't find him. She hears this little noise. He had climbed a great big white pine tree on his way to finding Ziggy and got stuck by his clothes in the tree and was hanging off a limb by his shirt in a tree in winter, <laughs> hanging from a tree. That was Josh. She had to get help to climb up the tree to get Josh out of the tree because he was stuck in a white pine tree in the middle of winter. You know, that was Josh. She said, I need a car. Eventually, we, I, bought, I bought the infamous brush buggy. $300 for a total rusted out Nissan pickup. It was in such bad shape. It blew smoke so bad, but it was 300 bucks. The only thing good about the Nissan brush buggy is underneath the seat was this really cool, great Chicago cutlery boning knife that I still use the skin every year that I have. <laughs> it was underneath the seat. And so I still use it every single, every single time I skin a deer. And so, but the fact is, we didn't have the money, so we didn't buy it. And it was tough, and it was hard, and people said we were crazy, and they would laugh at us, and they would make jokes. But guess what? And our family would look at us, our, our parents would look at us and say, you can't live like that. That's wrong. And guess what? We did it. And we're doing great today. And our kids didn't die. You know what? They didn't die because they didn't have the latest of everything. Guess what? A lot of their clothes for many years were secondhand hand-me-downs. For most of their lives it was. But we chose to live in financial freedom. I make you a promise. None of the things that you will have to give up will give you the joy that living financially free will give you. None of them. Do whatever it takes to live within your means. You may have to go from owning a house to renting a house. You may have to commit to renting a house the rest of your life, an apartment, because it's cheaper. You, whatever decisions you have to make, you might have to go to one car, and you might have to give up all your cell phones. Guess what? You won't die. You say, but you can't live like that. Guess what? You could even live without cable TV. I know it's hard to imagine. Your family might be better off without a satellite dish. 
that cost you something. You say, you know, you, you, you talk this way and it's easy for you because you have those things. Guess what? Number one, I don't have cable TV. He gave it up because I don't want to spend the money on it and I don't like the stuff I was putting in the house. But number two, and I live where it's, it's, I'm in the city. It's not like I'm in the country. I can't get it. Number two, I'm telling you, there's nothing greater. When God says go, we've always been able to go. Nothing holding us back. Leave tomorrow because of living in financial freedom. The blessings we've seen have been because of living in, living in freedom. One of those freedoms is financial freedom. The world laughs at you and says, oh, you don't have everything you, you need. I'm saying when you have Jesus and you're walking in his will, you have everything and they don't have anything. Because guess what? Uh, a new cuddle up next to your new cell phone doesn't give you peace that night. Having Jesus in your heart. Matter of fact, it does the opposite. It keeps you awake all night because people text you, you younger people who keep those on like that. So, let me just touch on one more thing before we close. I've gone a little long today, but I think that's okay, right? Because this is, this is spiritual. The reason I'm so passionate about this is because I really believe the devil laughs. Because he, he, he renders us ineffective because of stress debt. And people can't do what God's calling them to do. Last thing is this, like, as I close. Um, when you walked in today, you're given a little yellow card. Some of you, you've seen this before. I gave this exact same card out five years ago. Some of you don't remember it. Some of you still have it in your wallet. Somebody, I'm hearing people saying, I still got it in my wallet. On the front is eight questions asked for your spending. On the back are eight verses that support the eight reasons why you should spend according to these things. I'm just going to read them. It could be a whole sermon. I could just preach this, this eight points today, but I, I want to just give it to you. You stick it in your, stick it where your credit cards go. It's that size. Put it where your credit cards go in your wallet, and before you use your credit cards, look at this. Okay? Simply eight things to ask before you make a purchase. And this is not whether I'm saying this, even if you have so much money that you use it to write notes to one another at home. You've got so much, there's piles of it in your house. You just you can't walk because there's piles of hundreds in your way when you're trying to get through the house. You can't walk, even you, because guess what? If you have that, that resource, God wants to use it for something better than writing notes. He wants you to use it for, to advance his kingdom. So number one question, does it put me in debt? If it does, just say, I'm not doing it. Number two, do I have doubt about it? There's something, you got this cool thing I talked at the beginning. He's called the Holy Spirit. If you're born again, he lives within you. The problem is most of us don't at all know how to listen. We live our own life completely and we silence the voice of the Spirit. And he tries to speak, but what you speak is you go, oh, that's just a, that's just a little thought that came in mind. No, it's the Holy Spirit saying, you know what, is that the best thing to do? If you have doubt about it, you probably shouldn't do it. It's probably the Holy Spirit. Number three, has God already led me to meet a need with this money? So I got a gas bill, I got to pay, but I really want the new, latest, greatest iPhone. Guess what? You don't need the new, latest, greatest iPhone. Pay your gas bill. Or maybe this. I know I'm supposed to pay a tithe, but you know what? I'm going to buy another car, and I'm going to pay that, I'm going to use that, I'm going to pay interest to pay off that car. And the money that should have went to the glory of God is going to pay interest on a loan and make somebody else very rich. Number four, have I given God an opportunity to supply it? I remember telling this to a person recently, over the last couple of years, um, a pastor, and their car broke. And they absolutely needed a car. And, like, and it was bad. He had taken a pay cut, gone into ministry, had a lot of stuff before, had nothing now, and was saying, this isn't fair. And I said, don't borrow the money. I have to. I said, don't borrow the money. Wait. 
I said, if it comes to the fact that you're, you're finally walking down the street and you can't do it anymore, you know what? Then go ahead. But wait. The person waited well beyond what they're comfortable with. Somebody approached him and said, God wants me to give you my car. I said, see? God loves to supply. So give God an opportunity to supply it. Number five, will it be disadvantageous to my spiritual growth? Friends, this, is the, this should probably be number one. The things we buy own us. And a lot of things that own us then cause us to, to diminish the energy we should put into our walk with Jesus. So I have that, I have that place on the lake, or I have that toy, the, the whatever. The, I'm trying to be generic here because I don't think any of you have this. Um, maybe you know, I hope they do. The sports car that makes me go to the car show and go to the car show, I choose not to be with my family and not be at church. Then I'd say, do you think God really wanted you to buy the sports car? I would say, I don't believe for a second God wanted you to buy the sports car if it's going to take you away from what God wants. So will it be disadvantageous to my spiritual growth? Number six, and I'm hoping no one has sports cars at the car show. I don't know if anybody does that. If it is, it just might be God because I don't think anybody does. Um, number six, will it be meaningful to my family or is it something that I want just for me? In other words, is it just driven by selfishness? God doesn't call us to be selfish. He calls us to be self, selfless. Number seven, is it motivated by the love of things? You have that false belief that the world loves to teach you that if you just have more stuff, you'll be happier. You won't be. You'll be more unhappy. If you have more stuff and more debt, you'll be more unhappy than you will be with less stuff and less debt. It's just the way God wired you. You'll be happier. Number eight, if you don't know what to do, seek the counsel of wise, and I should say wise people because I'm not trying to be sexist there, but seek the counsel of wise people that are living in financial freedom and say, how'd you get there? Especially people who came from nothing and had went to something. They know how to get there because they went from something to nothing. So use these guidelines before you make purchases. It will keep you from making mistakes um, because, friends, you know what? Poor purchasing decisions cause indebtedness and indebtedness cause debt stress and debt stress diminishes your capacity in this world. That makes sense? This is spiritual stuff. So, we close today. I want to go back to something I said at the very beginning of the service. And I mentioned it again in the middle. Jesus wants us to be free in all areas of our lives. He wants us to be free financially. That's what we've talked about today. And we talked about two other Sundays. And we talked about one more Sunday. Um, but more importantly, he wants you to be free spiritually. The Bible says if you had all the money in the world and built huge barns to contain it, and then you lost your soul, it'd be a tragedy. It'd be do you no good. Because all this stuff only lasts for a very short period of time. I was 25 yesterday. I'm 51 today. Some of you are Pearl. I asked her. Pearl was like 40 yesterday and she died at 90, 91. She was still like 30 in her mind, you know? And boom, it snuck up that fast. The stuff of this world is, is so limited. And if you had all the money in the world and all the possessions and you lost your soul, the Bible says, what good would it be? question is, have you ever come, term, come to terms with the fact that the Bible says every person born in the world is born into debt, sin debt. 
This whole series, God is about eliminating debt. He says we're all debtors. We all are guilty. And because of that, there's a sentence put on our life. And our sentence is a death sentence. And Jesus said, I don't want you to die. And he said, you know what? I'm going to come and I'm going to pay for your debt. That's what Jesus did on the cross. It's a, it's a transaction. It's, a, it's, a, it's in, in essence almost like a financial transaction. He says, you owe it, I'll pay it. And he took your place and he died in your stead in order to give you financial freedom. It says this, that all the work in the world you could do to try to pay off your debt, you couldn't pay off. You could try to be as good as you want. You could give every penny you have to the poor. You could never borrow a dime and give every nickel you know, to, to, to poor people. Gone on, on Skid Row. So that wouldn't do it. But the only way you can have your sins forgiven is to recognize that you need Jesus in your life. Ask Him to come into your life. Ask Him to forgive you. We kind of say it backwards. We say, receive Jesus. I say just the opposite. You ask Jesus to receive you, to forgive you. You come to Jesus and say, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner, and I can't do anything about it, and I need your help. And you know what He loves to do? The cross shows that His arms are wide open. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, I don't want you to be in sin debt. And he welcomes you into his family. And he says, I'll wash away your sin, and I'll make you brand new. I'll breathe spiritual life into you. That's when the Holy Spirit comes and and makes us brand new, regenerates us, gives us life where we had death inside before. Friends, that is where spiritual freedom is found, in Jesus. And if you've never come to that place. I'm not talking about whether you go to church. You go to church from now till Jesus comes and not find spiritual freedom. But you've never yet said, I need Jesus in my life. I want to be free spiritually. Today is the day to do that. God wants that for you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we're, we're talking about freedom today. Freedom financially. God, I pray for every person who's in this place who finds themselves today probably simply because they live in a culture that's taught them that debt is good. Or maybe they took some risks and those risks didn't pay off and now they find themselves um, in debt and maybe they're even in a spot where they feel like they can't hardly keep their head above the water. Lord, I pray this today. First of all, just encourage them. Wrap your arms around them today and let them know right now that you don't love them any less. That their life might have to take a while to work itself out, maybe many years, maybe it took many years to get there, many years to work itself out. But in the meantime, you want them to have joy and peace because you're bigger than debt. And that God empower them then as they covenant with you to not get in any more debt and give them a plan for working out of the debt. Show them how it's possible, God. Whatever drastic measures have to be done, Lord, show them how they could have a plan, a path to go in the right way. But Lord, we know from your word there's another kind of indebtedness that's even worse. It's that debt of sin. And we're all born, God, into this world with that weight of sin upon our shoulders. We can't usually figure it out. Why are we so unhappy? How come my, my relationships fail? How come um, joy doesn't come? I went from this job to that job and I'm still not happy. And it's because of the weight of sin in our lives. You didn't create us to bear that weight. 
But Lord, that weight of sin crushes us. That, that debt. But Lord, you came to make us free. Your word says that whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And Lord, as you speak to hearts this morning, there may well be someone in this place, maybe multiple people that say, I've never really come to the place. Or I've honestly said, Jesus, I'm desperate, I'm lost, I'm, I'm in debt, and I need you to come into my life and forgive me and make me brand new. But God, I'm there today. Maybe this whole thought of equating it to finances has suddenly said, well, that makes sense. I get it. I can be in financial debt and I'm in spiritual debt. Now I get it for the first time. And I get that Jesus wants to get me out of debt. He wants to wipe my debt clean and stamp on my life spiritually paid in full. That's you today. You recognize you're lost. You're desperate. You're saying, but today I'm going to turn to the only source that can bring me freedom. That's Jesus. And I'm not even sure what that's going to mean, but I'm going to open up my heart to Christ today and say, I want you to come into my life. If that's you, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to just have a moment between you, me, and God. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out, but I want you to make a response to say, it's me today. If that's you, I want you right now just to raise up your hand. When I see your hand, I'm going to tell you to put it back down. Just say, I want to... I want to call it to Jesus today because I need him in my life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Father, help us to be your voice in this community. The voice to our kids and the voice to our grandkids and to our neighbors and to our friends, our parents, saying that, God, you can live spiritually free in Jesus. Father, I pray this week for every one of us to have an opportunity. Lord God, to not only free ourselves from whatever debt may be holding over our heads, Lord, financially, but Lord, that we would have a chance to share with somebody else who is in bondage of spiritual debt. And you could use us to help lead the way to bring them into life and health and freedom. So, Lord, I pray for this church family. I pray that we'd be the healthiest, spiritually healthiest, most prepared, ready to go at your, the call of your voice to do whatever. And, God, we'd be able to do it because we'd align with your principles and that, God, you would use us for your glory, not use it in a bad way, but use it in a good way to know we are doing something eternal. So, Lord Jesus... We give ourselves to you. Lead us through these days. And cause us, God, to be your hand and your voice in the world around us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.